did this before break for CNU students. We had uh, baby bottles for CareNet ministry, and now we're encouraging everyone else. Uh, we're starting in month uh, this this month, and we're going to go for about a month or so. You can pick up a, a, an empty baby bottle up front after the service, and then we encourage you to put change in it. I mean, you can put bills and checks in it too if you want, but this goes to uh, a ministry that 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 we are uh, wholeheartedly support. Um, I really appreciate CareNet and what they do and, and the way they do it. I just really think they, uh, they go about it in a very godly way. And so there are these things, and we're already starting to get back. So students, if you, if you took yours and, and uh, you, know, you remembered to bring it back, you can start bringing them on Sundays, and uh, all of this will go towards, towards CareNet. So for everyone here, if you could fill up one, if you could fill up two, you know, whatever, they're up here, help yourself to them. If we run out, we'll have more next week. I would be thrilled if we ran out. How cool would that be? We've already given out 100, and now we've got another 100 to give out. And let's just, let's just keep doing it. That sounds great. We're in uh, um, the book of Esther. Now we've come to Esther chapter 8. I want to say this too. If you're following on Bible app or you've got the sheet in front of you, I know the sheet. I edited it just a little bit because it was just too big. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Esther 8. And the thing I want to mention is if you don't have a Bible... There are Bibles in the foyer for free. You can just pick one up and take it. We encourage you to do that. We want you to have that because we encourage you to be reading your Bible during the week. And if you'd like help with that, there we have in there daily breads that you can use for a daily short little, a little story and a, a short Bible reading to help you with that. We would, we would love to be as much of a help as we can. All right, so we're in Esther chapter 8. We're talking about what's been going on. We're going to review that in just a minute. But just before we do, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about a time in your life when you have been highly motivated. Um, maybe something uh, has been so compelling that it has dominated your thinking. You, you were driven by it. Can you think of a time in your life where you were motivated to do something that was costly, maybe even radical? Now, for many obvious reasons, uh, there's quite a few of you here. A thing that would, might pop in your mind is, is your spouse, that time where, you know, you started, maybe you started dating, you got to know each other, and there came that moment where you decided, I want to spend my life with this person. I'm going to ask this person to marry me. I remember vividly driving up to Boston, Massachusetts, where my wife lived, and uh, coming in, and, and, and her family was there, and, and um, so everybody was doing something, and Bev and I were sitting on the couch, and I had a ring in my pocket, and I was figuring out, you know, some of you, I've noticed lately, some of you have incredibly romantic ways of asking people to marry you. That was just so far beyond me that it wasn't even in the picture. And I was trying to figure out when would be a good time, when would be the proper place, and I'm just nervous and sweating, and my heart's beating, and my wife just said, are you okay? My wife, she wasn't my wife then. She my, Bev, my, no, she wasn't my fiance. I got to get this right. <laughs> Bev said, are you okay? She goes, I, th- I think I can see your heart beating. I was so, and I was like, well, actually, you know. I mean, lame, right? I just so lame, just like, <laughs> please. I just, please. It was a huge, but I had been working up towards this, you know, we, and, and thinking it and, you know, all these things. And I was motivated to make a momentous decision. So maybe you're next to somebody right now 
This rings a bell. You made that momentous. You might want to just squeeze their hand. Let them know it's still momentous. Maybe you're next to someone you don't really know, but you think maybe. <laughs> squeeze their hand. Let them know. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. I, I don't give good dating advice. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right now there's a whole bunch of people. Now I'm not going to talk to him. That guy's weird. Okay. When we think about this, oftentimes as Christians, we are compelled. We are compelled by the love of God to go to great lengths, to do things that could be radical, to do things that could even at times be costly. And oftentimes what can happen is, and some of you have been through this, friends or family, they don't understand. Why are you doing that? That seems crazy. What are you doing? I mean, I watched it happen to my family, family that no one knew Christ, and seeing my brother, one of my brothers, become a Christian, and the whole family thinking, this is crazy. And often as Christians, God calls us. He compels us to do things sometimes that are radical. They're out of the ordinary. And we see this throughout history, people so driven by their love for God that they will go to the point of risking life and limb for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may not have ever been prompted to do something like that, but you know what? I just want to let you know, there may come a time where you will find yourself in a situation and in a position where you will be prompted to do something that is incredibly radical. And God, God being in it will make it something that even if it's radical, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And here, we have the overarching theme that we've been talking about the whole time. Through the book of Esther, God delivers his people through his servant who interceded for them in order to rescue them. And indeed, this is the theme of the Bible. This is the theme of history, of the world. God delivers his people through his servant who has interceded for them in order to rescue them. And last week, we looked at Esther chapter 7, the pivotal chapter. If you were not here, I encourage you, you can go to our website. You can, you can uh, you know, you just hit resources and sermons, and you can listen to that sermon. And it's not because, you know, I'm so vain. I want you to listen to me speak. It's because I think it's a great thing to learn. It's a great, that, that passage is an awesome passage. And so we have now, just to remember what has happened We have now, they've been through the third banquet. This is the third time the king has said to Esther, what do you want? Tell me what you really, tell me what you want, what you really, really want, right? And she said, I'll tell you what I want, what I, right, right? Okay, so (laughs) I think I lost brain cells because I know that song. Just for knowing that song, it's a negative to me, all right? He says, what's your petition? What's your, what's your request? And what does she say? Here's my petition. Don't kill me. I'm going to lose my life because of this. Here's my request. Don't kill my people. Right? And and, and remember the king, he, you know, he he doesn't know. This is, he's so clueless. Right? One of the things we've seen about Xerxes is half the time he's not 100% sure what's going on, which somewhat I can understand, a king and a large kingdom and all that. But some of this is his own doing. He has, he has created these problems himself. And so he suddenly hears, someone's going to kill my queen? And we talked about this last week. This is very important because why? Because kings are obsessed with security. Kings rarely die in battle. They die in their, in their castle a lot through assassination. So they're obsessed with security. And the fact that someone would have the means to kill his queen means they'd have the means to kill him. 
right? And, and, and so he is furious. Tell me who this person, who is this person? You know, and she's like, I'll turn on my evil detector. Beep, 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 Haman, right? She says, this man, he's the one. And the king storms out. He's furious. He's furious at Haman. And I think he's somewhat furious at himself because he chose Haman to be the number one guy under him. It's kind of, have you ever had this, you're in a bind, you go to God, you're praying, and I'm in a bind, and it's my fault, right? I was reading uh, uh, last week, I was reading some of the Psalms, and, and one of the Psalms, the psalmist says, my enemies are ever before me. And I remember sitting there going, God, that's not my problem. It's not my enemies are ever before me. It's me, I'm the problem. That's why, that's why I was reading that, and I went, I went to Psalm 51, because what does David say? He says, my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. David says, God, I'm coming to you. In Psalm 51, God, I'm coming to you. I need grace. I need mercy. I need help. And I am not coming to you because those evil people out there. I'm coming to you because there's an evil person right here. I need help. Of course, I've got to make this historical. In 1813, in the Battle of Lake Erie against the British, Oliver Hazard Perry, the commander of the ship that won the battle, said, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. And I think my problem is, I've met the enemy, and he is me. That's what it is. I'm the enemy. And I got a feeling that this is somewhat of what Xerxes was feeling as he stormed out into that garden. It's his fault that all this has happened. He promoted Haman. He gave Haman the authority to create this edict. Haman convinced him of it, kind of, he, he, he kind of fooled him on it, but convinced him of it, and he signed off on it. And so he knows what has to be done. But the question is, how do you do it? Because I appointed him. I will look bad. I approved the edict. How did I let him sway me like this? How am I going to handle this? How am I going to get out of this mess? And he comes back in, and there's Haman, if you remember last week, Haman falling on the queen's couch, begging for his life. Ah, solution. In the Medo-Persian Empire, no one is allowed to get within seven feet of the queen. And Haman broke that rule. And so what does he say? He's assaulting my wife in my quarters? The nerve, get him out of here. And so Haman is impaled on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And now we come to chapter 8. And the first thing we're going to see is the reward for righteousness. That same day, okay, all this that I just described has just happened. That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the state, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther was appointed him over Haman's estate. And so now we see something. We see something that we see throughout the Bible. We see the humble being exalted, and we see the exalted being brought down. And throughout Scripture, this happens. This is God's way. He tells us this over and over. One, one instance is, is, is James 4, 4, 6. He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now we have to understand pride here. This is me pride. I am the center. It's all about me. I am the best. And this pride, where does it lead? This kind of pride leads to mockery. Mockery of other people. It leads to belittling. It leads to dehumanizing 
Because this kind of pride begins to think of others as less, and it dehumanizes them. And God says, he says, I'm against the person who does that. Okay. In this day, in our day, in our political atmosphere, Christians are doing this. And that's wrong. God is against it. God is against it. God is actively against this kind of pride and those who indulge in it. Those who indulge in mocking, belittling, dehumanizing. God says, I hate that. I'm against it. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot fall into that. And it doesn't matter, I I don't talk about policy, but it doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on. Okay? Mocking, belittling, dehumanizing is out of bounds. Out of bounds is too, that's, you know, it's like, oh, he ran out of bounds. No, it's wrong, and God says he's against it. It is not what Christians should be doing, okay? So in this passage, we see there's an earthly reward. They are rewarded. But we know that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen in Scripture. Some things we won't see until after we're with Jesus. But God still promises we will see it. He promises that. He promises everything will be set right. He promises justice will be done. In Hebrews chapter 11, he addresses some of this in a number of places, but here's one of them. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what is he talking about there in the context of these? He's saying there's these people, that, and they saw that they were promised, and they saw the promises in the distance, but they never actually, they were never fulfilled in their presence as, while they were alive, they went to their grave looking for those promises. He says they didn't get their earthly reward. They didn't. Some of them suffered greatly and held their faith right to the end. And I love that last line, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Some things will not work out until the time comes when God finally sets everything right. But in that last part, he says he's thrilled to call you his child. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you deeply. He's thrilled with you. That's a hard thing for us to get a hold of. That's a hard thing for me to get a hold of because I know me. I know how I am. I know the things I think. And, And it scares me because the only other person sometimes who knows the things I think is God. And if he knows what I think, how can he be thrilled with me? But he is not ashamed of me. He is not ashamed of you. He is thrilled with you. He loves you deeply. To call you his child is something he takes great delight in. So, Esther and Mordecai see vindication. But the edict is still in effect. In a few months, there's going to be a day when people can attack Jews and kill them. And implicit in the edict is that the Jews do not have the right to defend themselves. So that day is coming. 
The edict is still in effect. And so now we see there's a reward for righteousness, but now we're going to see there's a new decree. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil, the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So we see playing out again what happened earlier. She has to come before him. She has to come before him without being invited, and she begs him. If it pleases the king, she says. Uh, let's see. Oh, if it pleases the king, she said, and if, it, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? All right, so now, what is she saying? She's, she's saying, look, I understand the edict is still out there. And, and, and she's kind of implying, I may be safe now, I may be safe, but my people will die. But here's what we're going to learn in the next chapter. She was not safe. She was not safe. His, his guard, inner guard had been infiltrated by people who were on Haman's side and were looking to kill Jews. In So she was not totally safe. Because the thing is, understanding, if someone killed her on that specific day, they cannot be prosecuted. It's not murder. Because there's an edict that says on this day, you can kill Jews with impunity and you can take all their stuff, plunder. You can take everything. You can kill, you can kill their women. You can kill their children on this particular day. And if someone in the castle killed her, the king has no way he can prosecute that person. Because it's his edict and she's a Jew. But she's thinking she's safe now. But she says, hey, all my, my, my people, this is wrong. Because now the king has realized Mordecai is one of those people that were going to be killed. And Mordecai saved his life. And so we see here, now, write another decree, she's asking him. In the king's name, in behalf, or the king is saying this, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. He's saying, okay, so come up with a counter edict. You can't outlaw anything that's said in this edict, but you figure out a way, how can you nullify it? It's up to you. The king's edict granted the Jews, this is what they came up with, in every city, the right to assemble and protect themselves, which they didn't have before. To destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or or province who might attack them, and and their women, and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now, what they did was, they wrote the same edict. They met it point for point. But now we come against something that we have to talk about. And it would be easy to skip it. Women and children. Now, in the, well, this is the NIV. And they, and this happens sometimes. They took the easy way out. They said, let's word this so no one's sure who the women and children are. You get that when you read that? Is that the Jewish women and children? Or that the bad guys' women and children? It's not real clear in the English. You can read it either way. It's not totally clear in the Hebrew, but it tends to point towards the bad guys' women and children, which makes it more difficult, right? The thought that the Jews now have been given permission to kill women and children seems horrific. So let's talk about this. Because this is important. Uh, because this is where we get uneasy. 
And if we're going to be honest, we have to deal with these things. So here we go. Number one, I want you to see something. This edict is a reversal of the first edict. A total reversal, point by point. Women and children were to be killed in the first edict. And this edict seems to be saying, basically, you can kill anyone who attacks you. And that's a, that's a key point. All right, so in, in the next, that's just one thing. Another thing is in this account, in the account in the next chapter, there is no mention of women and children being killed. It does not mention that. So it may be the Jews refrain from doing that. But the third thing I want you to see is in the world of that day, oftentimes women and children were involved in fighting. There's a famous story of a Greek king, Pyrrhus, who uh, in, in house-to-house warfare, there were children and women on the roofs. And they had roof tiles, and they were throwing them down at the enemy, and he was killed, and it specifically mentions he was killed by an older woman who dropped a roof tile on his head, and it killed him. So in those days, the fact that women and children may be involved in warfare actively is not an unusual thing. And before we get a little too, on, too much on our high horse about children, we have to remember in our day... Before we can get too sanctimonious, even today, in battles throughout this world, in battles that our troops are involved in, at what point does a child become a soldier? It's a horrible thing to have to deal with or to think about. But it is happening in this day, and it happened in those days. And so, it seems to be this edict is saying, if they attack you, you can kill them. It also says, and you can plunder. And one of the things we notice is we'll get next week, we'll talk about this. The Jews take nothing. They do not plunder anyone's possessions. They do not take anyone's goods. They do not invade anyone's home. They do not take anyone's fields or, or coins or anything. They simply defend themselves. All right. So um, the Jews now have been empowered you know, I know there's other passages in the Old Testament that have very difficult issues to deal with. But I, feel, I believe there are ways we can deal with them. Uh, basically, if we begin to understand the context and the historical aspect of what that passage and when it was written. We can't deal with all of that now. But this passage reminds me of something. This passage reminds me of two decrees that are in the world we live in. The first decree is ancient. It's the older, in a sense. And yet it's still a part of our life. It's still a part of the human history. It is that sin and death have entered this world. Sin is in each one of us. It started along, and we follow in those footsteps. We embrace rebellion. We reject God. And we reject his ways. And the first decree says we are all guilty. The second decree came out and point by point refutes the first decree. Jesus went to the cross. He died for us. We were made righteous through the free gift of salvation. The curse is reversed. There is new life. We are now adopted. We can live a transformed life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are made new by the second decree. And it's very similar in the book of Esther. The second decree in the book of Esther brings life. It brings at least the possibility of life. 
And the second decree that we now have because of Jesus Christ, for any who repent and accept this offer, it brings life. There's deliverance in Christ. Not through what we do, not through religious devotion, but because of what he has done, which is, makes all the difference in the world. So, verse 14, the couriers taking out the decree, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. Now, they went out, and it it has this sense of urgency. There's an urgency here. Why? Because there's a deadline looming. That's why there's urgency. The day is coming when the Jews will be fair game to any people, any group that want. And this has to get out quickly so they can prepare. Our second degree has an urgency to it too. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a deadline looming. There is a day when he will return. We don't know when. It might be today. It might be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But there's a deadline looming. And that's why. That's why do we support missionaries as a church and as individuals? Why do we support missionaries? Because the message is urgent and the time is limited. We think about, we talk here about reaching our neighbors, reaching people in our community. Why? Because time is limited and the message is urgent. Praying for them, praying for opportunities to speak to them because a deadline is is looming. We talk in this, we've been talking a lot in Esther because it emphasizes that the providence of God in this book where, where, like when Mordecai said to Esther, maybe it was for this reason that you have been brought to this position He's telling her, you see, maybe God is doing this. Look for him in this. And you, we all remember, at first she was like, you know, you don't understand. You don't understand. I could lose my life over this. And then finally she said, okay, fast, which involves praying. Fast and pray for me for three days. And on the third day, I'm going to go see the king. And if I perish, I perish. She makes a radical decision because of her love. And so we see the providence of God in this book, and it applies to us, maybe for an incredibly important reason. You are where you are this day. You are in the job you're in. You're at the school you're at. You're about to do things. You're about to uh, be involved in things. And, and, And the point here that we can bring out of the book of Esther is that maybe for an incredibly important reason, God has brought you to this point. And then it becomes, I will go. I will pray. I will fast. I will rely on him. And I will do it. Whatever it is. And I don't know what it is for you. But all of us have that it. That thing. that we, we, Back in our mind we think, okay, this may be someone I need to talk to. This may be. In fact, that person is calling you right now. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just called out the person. I, I totally understand. When, when my two boys, when they were in college, I used to call them at random times during the day hoping their phone was on and that they, it would ring in class and they'd get in trouble. Which is why my phone is off when I'm teaching. Because I know those, 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 because one of them has done it one time. Tried to call me while I was up here. And I was like, no, nah, sucker, not happening. <laughs> not happening, nope. So, okay, so we're, how did I get up on All right, so 
It's not by accident. It's not by accident you are where you live where you live. You work where you work. You go to school where you go to school. You know who you know. It's not an accident. God is working. There are people in your life, not by accident. And if you know Jesus, then you are to be a light in their world. You're to be a signal fire of grace. That's one of the things we learn from this book. We need to think about reaching people. We need to pray about reaching people. And this is the best thing about Esther. We need to plan. She had a plan. She had a plan. Okay. The reward for righteousness, the new decree, and the joy in a future promise. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. All right, so... It's interesting. The first decree, it says Susa was in fear and, and in confusion. The second decree comes out and it brings rejoicing. The deadline is still coming. It hasn't changed that. The deadline is still coming. They're not saved yet. They're going to have to defend themselves. Their deliverance has been declared, but it has not been fully delivered It has not been fully experienced, maybe I could say that. But they are looking to the promise and they are rejoicing. They know they're still going to have to go through this, but now there's joy. Now there's joy. And I I feel like in some ways this is kind of a picture of the way we live. How can a Christian have joy in difficult circumstances? And, And we see this in Scripture all the time. Our life is not to be circumstantial. We are not to be governed by what is happening at any individual present moment. We are looking to a coming joy. We are looking to promises that have we are looking to promises that will at some point be fulfilled. The great final reversal is still coming. But the past reality of the cross points to what is coming. We see the challenges, we see the brokenness that we still have to endure, we still see we all suffer pain. And the pain of sin is still here. But there is a tenacious hope in that that endures because we know what is coming. And I don't know what you're facing today. You know, only, you know, God knows. Maybe no one else knows. Maybe you're in a situation where you're the only person. You've never told, you have not told anyone. But we have a God who is faithful. He's faithful to his promises We see that in Esther. He's faithful to his people. We see that in Esther. He is working. We see that in Esther. And then you notice what happens at the end there. Some people become Jews. Now, we're not sure exactly how that worked or what was involved. Some of them may indeed have been making pragmatic decisions, right? Some of them may have been going like politicians do today. Okay, I think I'll go this way. This side seems to have the upper hand. Hey, guys, I'm one of you, brother. Right? That can happen. But no doubt there are some people who are making heartfelt decisions. They have sensed something, much like Rahab the harlot. You know, She said, we have heard about what your God did. Therefore, therefore, I make this decision. 
And there are some people here, they have seen what God did, and they're making a decision based on that. Their, their heart is responding. And so a decree of deliverance has gone out, and people are responding, and God is glorified, and his kingdom advances. Can you see that as us? We have a decree of deliverance. And it changes people from the inside out. There's lots of ways. You know, every parent here knows. There's lots of ways of making your kids toe the line. But their heart doesn't change necessarily. God changes people from the inside out. So let's be a part of spreading that news by loving our neighbors, by loving those far away, by becoming signal fires of grace that people see and they're attracted to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. We see the incredible things that you are doing in this book and the way you work. It rings so true to us now. There's nothing flashy going on. You are working steadily and powerfully in the background to accomplish your goals. Help us, Father, to see you working in our lives. God, we are always happy to see flashy. But help us also to be happy to see you working quietly in the background, changing hearts and changing lives. And God, give us the indescribable joy of being a part of that in people's lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take an offering. And uh, as they come forward, I, I want to emphasize, if you are, this is your first time, you're our guest. We don't want you to feel pressured to give. This is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship.